0: I want you to uh, picture that scene um, that Courtney just read about. We actually learn more about it if uh, we turn to the Gospel of Mark. Matthew sometimes will compress Mark. Matthew got a lot of his material from Mark. And um, I want you to imagine that Jesus and his disciples are back in the kind of the base city of Capernaum. That's where they do their business out of. And um, they're probably in Peter's house in Capernaum. And Jesus is teaching, and he's so uh, famous at this point that that the house is so packed that you can't even get in there. There's no way to get in there. And uh, he is also so famous that the scribes are there because they've probably now heard so much about him that they want to come and see what he's really like. And so they're there, the house is packed, and uh, everybody's hearing Jesus teach. And then suddenly everybody looks up, and there's plaster that's starting to fall from... The roof, and uh, over time, the more and more stuff falls down, and they realize that someone's actually opening a hole in the roof. Don't know how big the hole was, but uh, these guys have brought their paralyzed friend on a mat and are beginning to tear away the roof uh, so that they can lower him down into the house because they couldn't get in through the front door. And now uh, Peter and Jesus have helped this guy get down on the ground and. Now Jesus is looking at this man who's looking at him. Uh, the guy's probably embarrassed, has no idea what to do now. He's paralyzed. Um, the crowd's watching Jesus. And they, they know exactly what's going to happen next because this has been happening again and again and again. This is why the crowds are there. They know that Jesus is going to say, in uh, verse 2, Take heart, my son. Um, you are now healed. Your neck is healed. Obviously, that's what's going to happen next because that's why he's there. Uh, That's why they brought him there. He's been hoping his whole life to be healed from this. Uh, Maybe it happened in a swimming accident or something like that. Maybe it hasn't been his whole life. But um, here is the big day where he's going to be healed by this guy they finally believe can do this, and that's not what Jesus says. And until you really understand how shocking that is, the rest of the story doesn't really make sense. He doesn't say, Your neck is healed. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which is both really strange and almost offensive. It's strange because obviously the guy was there for healing, not forgiveness. And it's offensive because the guy didn't ask for forgiveness. And a stranger coming up and telling you you're forgiven is a, is a little bit of an odd thing to do. Sometimes when Margie and I are fighting, in the middle of one of our fights, and almost, almost as a joke to provoke her, I'll just say, hey Margie, it's okay, I forgive you. And she hasn't asked me for forgiveness yet. So it doesn't always go over very well. And um, I'm being provocative. But she'll be, at some point she'll be like, You mean you, you forgive me? You mean, you mean you sh- I forgive you? You're the one who started all this. And so for for Jesus to come to this guy, this random stranger, and say, I forgive you, the guy could obviously be thinking, What have I ever done to you that you would be forgiving me for? Who, who are you that you would say to me, your sins are forgiven. And uh, I want to talk about that, this claim that we sometimes forget how strange and offensive it is that Jesus walked around the earth and told people that he forgave them. He just came up to people and told them he forgave them. This has not happened yet in the Gospel uh, of Matthew. We, we've never gotten to the, to the level of forgiveness. It's been all about healing and teaching up to this point. But now we begin to see why he really came to the planet. And if you look at verse 3, the, the religious leaders are very wise people. They know what's going on here. And they say, this is blasphemy. This guy is acting like he is doing something that God can do, that only God can do. And so I want to look at that blasphemous claim that, that Christ forgives sins. And then kind of as a corollary and equally dis- disturbing part of the story, which is that basically Jesus says, I only dwell with sinners. Because I came to forgive sins, the only people that I really dwell with are people who are sinful, uh, who know they need forgiveness. People who are in desperate need of forgiveness. That's the people I'm close to. So those two things, Jesus forgives sins and that he dwells only with sinners. That's a phrase from Luther, that Christ dwells only with sinners. So first of all, verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, and it's interesting that it's their faith it's the guys' faith. It's the faith of the friends up in the roof. It's their collective faith. So sometimes we can have faith for each other. We can have faith to help each other get to Christ when we can't get to Christ. Uh, we, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And I want you to notice there that he didn't actually, the paralytic didn't say anything. Uh, there was no words exchanged. And so the only qualification for forgiveness uh, It's really not much of a qualification at all. It's just desperation. Uh, The the qualification is just this desire to have what he what to get what he has to to have the forgiveness that he offers. I I was um, on a retreat down at Flat Rock one year, church retreat, and I got there, and and this is the only time this has happened. But I forgot to bring my uh, lamotrigine, which is a medication I need for. Seizures, I have seizures at night sometimes, and so uh, I was very desperate at that moment to, to get some of this stuff. So I drove to Asheville and back at midnight to get this stuff. And if you want to call that you know, noble or um, impressive, then go ahead and call it that, but really it's just desperation. And so when a person has faith, what this guy had faith, these friends who let him down through the roof, that's just desperation. Uh, faith is not really a, a virtue. It's not something to take um, to pat yourself on the back, back for or take credit for. It's simply saying, I'm driving to CVS in Asheville to get this thing that I have to have. And that's what happens here. There's no words that are exchanged. It's simply this action. Jesus saw the, the man's need, and he said, that's good enough for me. And then he knelt down and looked him in the eye and said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And again, think about that. Um, that he, He's not saying God forgives your sins. He's, he's saying, I have authority on earth, verse 6. I have authority on earth to forgive your sins. I, I am the one who can offer you this the greatest of all gifts, to have your sins forgiven. Back in 1945-46, there were these things called the Nuremberg Trials. And if you know much about the history of uh, World War II, you know that they tried the most heinous Nazi war criminals... So the ones that had committed the worst crimes were put on trial, an international trial, so that the whole world could see that these guys were guilty. And one of these people, one of the worst of all, was a man named Hermann Goering, who was like the number two guy to Hitler. Uh, Hermann Goering was was there uh, amongst the the war criminals tried for the atrocities in the Holocaust in Nuremberg, Germany. And amazingly, the Allies offered these uh, war criminals spiritual care. I don't know exactly who who decided to do that, but it was quite a gesture. And so a Lutheran pastor named uh, Henry Garricky was assigned to the the war criminals. And Garricky had just seen the gas chambers in Dachau. He had been there. Uh, So he knew exactly what he was doing. And he walked up to Hermann Gehring, and he said, God forgives you. And again... You know, think about how astonishing and reckless that is. I mean, Henry Gericke had not had any children put in gas chambers. This is a guy who had not really very, even met Herman Gehring. He didn't know anything about him. He, he certainly didn't suffer for any of his crimes. So that in itself is pretty astonishing to go up and tell someone uh, that God forgives your sins. But what if, what if this Lutheran pastor had actually gone and said to Hermann Gehring, I forgive you. I mean, that would be downright immoral. Almost terrifying. I mean, the crowd was, was afraid in verse 8 when they saw this happen. I don't think they were afraid because a paralyzed man was walking. That had happened before. They were afraid because th- this man had not only offered forgiveness, but had proven that the forgiveness had happened because the miracle of the healing was the visible proof that the invisible greater miracle had happened that his sins were forgiven. And so the, cr- the crowd was afraid in verse 8. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people who their sins had undoubtedly injured. All the people that Herman Gehring had injured. Lewis says Jesus unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the person chiefly offended. And this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. So, you know, basically this sermon will have achieved its aim if you are to leave here today knowing that you are completely forgiven and that you're astonished by that, that that hits you with a new vigor today, that you are completely forgiven. I mean, the scribes say... The man is blaspheming because the, the mortal claiming forgiveness um, is a claim to be God, just like Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said. Isaiah forty three twenty five, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And the scribes knew that Jesus was claiming to be that God, the one who blots out our transgressions. And so the, the question is, do you understand what that means about your life? That your, all your sins that are past and present and future have been forgiven. If you have faith in Christ, that desperation to have that happen to you, that that is offered to you. And therefore, if you receive that, how much that makes you upright and, and able to stand straight and have your, you know, with your shoulders straight and without shame, without guilt. Notice that Jesus doesn't just forgive him, but he says, take heart, which means, you know, your guilt, which takes the heart out of you. I mean, if you've suffered under terrible guilt, it takes the heart out of you. And Jesus is saying, I want to put that heart back in you. I want to, get, I want to strengthen your spine with steel courage to continue to walk upright in spite of the fact that you have sinned terribly. You know, King David had done horrible things. And even though he was forgiven, King David never again could discipline his sons with with any authority. And that's why the kingdom was destroyed, because David had no heart. He could not speak with moral authority into the situations of his terrible sons. And it destroyed his kingdom. And so Jesus says to this guy, "You're, you're a son, you're a full son, a son of God, in the image of God, a full Israelite. And I want you to take heart, and I want you to take heart that not only are sins forgiven, but you can walk uprightly and stand straight and tall knowing that you are fully a child of God. And the physical miracle is a reflection of the moral miracle. When he says rise and pick up your bed and go home, you know years of being bent over and stooped over physically and morally are suddenly just gone. In verse 7 it says he rose and he went home. And the difference in the posture and the bearing of that man physically is is equal to what is spiritually and morally going on behind the scenes. This guy is now standing upright, forgiven and free and righteous, totally restored to society, every part of him, the body and the soul. The same thing happens in Matthew's story, where Matthew is this slick and dirty and greedy tax collector. But after Jesus forgives him and says, take heart, my my son, a son of Israel, a true son of Israel, son of Abraham, what does Matthew go and do after that? He, he writes the Gospel of Matthew. God chooses this person, who was a tax collector, to write the Gospel of Matthew, to record this story. And we often come to Jesus, and we come to him for healing, which is appropriate and wonderful. A lot of stories of healing just now we've talked about. But oftentimes we think that our number one problem you know, is that hurt shoulder, or that epilepsy, or the spouse with cancer or your depression, or your anxiety, all of which, again, are are real problems, Um, depression, broken relationships, someone not talking to you. These are things that are terrible, terrible things. But our number one problem that Jesus always sees is the lack of forgiveness, the guilt, the crippling guilt. And when he came to earth, he saw people just weighed down, permanently kind of bent over and crippled by these huge sacks of guilt on their back, just walking around guilty all the time. And his words are meant to lift that weight off of you. You know, I talked to somebody who finished the MCAT this past week, and, and, and they said it, it felt like the weight of the world was taken off my shoulders. For months, that's all I had been obsessed with, and now it was over. I just breathed this huge sigh of relief. And if you think about your sins being forgiven, I mean, how much more? The weight of that just taken off. All the guilt caused... I mean, this is not false guilt. We're not talking about neurotic guilt. You know, the the kind of guilt that you're supposed to just get rid of by uh, thinking about it correctly. This is real guilt. This is the guilt that is because of your sin. Um, This guy who I'm I'm reading this book um, called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford. And he says that uh, sin is our active inclination to break stuff promises, relationships, our own well-being. He defines it throughout the book as the human propensity to F things up. So the whole book, he writes that again and again and again. That's what sin is. The human propensity to screw up everything. Which we've all done. You know, whether it's toxic words or, or flaming anger or nurse grudges, greed, lying, envy, addictions, constantly looking at screens, sexual fantasies, you know, horrible thoughts we'd never tell anybody. Um, these are these stains that are so hard to remove. It's like cooking grease in in, in a shirt, or, or red wine, or mustard, or coffee. There's things that you just can't blot out yourself. I cannot tell you enough times your sins are forgiven to have this thing come out of you. You know, and in, in Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, is is furiously trying to get this thing out of her clothes and she keeps saying, Out, out, damn spot, and she cannot get it out because it's a reflection of the guilt that's there that she can't get rid of. And only the, the perfectly holy God of the universe could take that level of guilt away. No counselor or friend can do that. You can't forgive yourself in that way. Forgiving yourself is an important part of being a human, but you can't forgive that depth. Only the consuming fire, the one who is actually offended more than anyone in all of your sins, the one who is untainted and unstained and utterly pure, Only He can forgive your sins, and only He does it unhesitatingly. Without a moment's hesitation. Before you ask, unfailingly, with no resentment at all, uh, He alone forgives perfectly. You know, we try to forgive each other, we try to get rid of the grudges. It takes a long time, it's a process. With God, it's not a process, it's just instant. He forgives you, and it's gone. So the only one who can is the only one who really does. And he does completely. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first point, that Jesus forgives sins. And the second point follows, which is that if he came to earth to forgive sins, who is he going to spend his time with? He's going to spend his time with people who need forgiveness. What else would he be doing? If you're a dentist and you go on a missions trip and you're in Haiti, who are you going to spend your time with down in Haiti? You're going to spend your time with people whose teeth are crooked, You're not going to spend time with people whose teeth are fine. So when Jesus comes to earth, who is he hanging out with? Verse 10, he reclined at table in the house of Matthew. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the key word there is to recline at table. Otherwise known as table fellowship It was a really big deal back then. For the Jews, this was a huge part of their identity. Um, is that they were people who had table fellowship with only Jews. And so reclining at table was not like meeting someone at Panera for lunch or the Village Juice shop or something like that. It's more like a long, long dinner at the best restaurant you've ever been to in your life. Uh, Antoine's in New Orleans, supposed to be the, the greatest American restaurant, some people say. Uh, Matthew was a rich guy. So this could have been like um, you know a six-course meal with like a $10,000 bill at the end, with the $100 bottles of wine. Um, I looked at their menu, winter salad, crusty rolls, pecan encrusted drumfish, coffee flambéed at your table, the best bread pudding in the world. Um, they, these guys are not bolt upright in hard wooden pews like you are right now. They're not eating in a back chair. They are reclining on pillows. It's intimate. This would have been hours and hours of deep conversation and laughter and, uh, and the people that, that he's eating with are Matthew's friends. So he's reclining at a table with, uh, with the friends of Matthew. If you look in verse 9, you notice that Jesus passed on from his house, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said, follow me, and immediately Matthew rose and followed him. So Matthew was forgiven, and as soon as he was forgiven... Uh, the tax collector texted all his friends like, you've got to come and meet this man who forgave me. And I've got to throw this huge party in his honor because he has done something for me that no one has ever said to me before. He, is, uh, he has invited me into his company and he's forgiven me. And so Matthew has this gigantic meal for all his friends. Matthew is not like Fontine and Le Miz, kind of a gentle, um, you know, victim of society. The way we see a lot of sinful people uh, like they weren't really that guilty. Matthew was a traitor to the Jewish people. He was Jewish and he had turned against them. And he, would, he had used his knowledge of Judaism to become a traitor to the Jews by, be, by being working for the Romans and, and collecting taxes and, and then taking more than his fair share. So he's a predatory lender. He's preying on the poor. He's like one of those guys at the quick cash store. Um, he's a terrible man. A despicable man. And so the Jews are right to wonder why Jesus is eating with him. And then the friends of Matthew, you can imagine the friends of Matthew. This is like the Capernaum underground, the Capernaum mafia. These are violent, hardened, you know, strip club owners, drug dealers, gamblers, hard drinkers, scratchy voices. These are people that we don't spend a lot of time with. But those are the ones that Matthew had in his, you know, in his phone. Like those are the first guys that he would call and now they're all at this house. And so They're eating with Jesus. You can understand why the Pharisees are standing outside the house looking and saying, what is going on in there? Why? We thought that that he was respectable. We thought he was a rabbi. We thought he was a leader of the Jews. And they're talking, the disciples, notice they don't go to the, they don't go to Jesus. Um, The Pharisees don't go to Jesus. They go to disciples. So, So the disciples, I imagine, are standing kind of on the perimeter of the house, maybe on the porch, and they're drinking their odules or some other non-alcoholic beverage. And they are kind of one foot in, one foot out, not sure if they really want to go in there or not. And so the Pharisees come to them and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the reason they're indignant, again, is because part of the Jewish identity was you do not eat with a Gentile. I mean, God, God said that in the, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law. He put these food laws in place so they would not eat with the Gentiles because if you eat with a group of people, you become like them. That's the the way you had fellowship and intimacy and you would begin to intermarry with those people. These were your neighbors and friends that you would eat with. And so God said, don't eat with them because if you eat with them, you'll become like them. You will lose your Jewish identity. You'll become like the Gentiles. You'll become merciless and hardened. Uh, You'll become, you know, all these things that they don't want the Jews to become. And so... Limiting table fellowship with the Gentiles was part of God's plan for the world to preserve Israel's identity. But, but now that Messiah has come, and these people want to be with, with Jesus and God's people, uh, these laws are not necessary anymore. And so the Pharisees are misusing the laws to exclude these seekers, these people who are forgiven, and coming into Israel. And the Pharisees are using these laws to feel superior Um, Whereas the point of the laws was to protect Israel from becoming cold and retributive and merciless and graceless like the Gentiles. And that's why Jesus says in verse 13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because the point of the table fellowship laws was for mercy, ultimately. So that Israel would be different from the world and could invite the world in. Not exclude the world, feel superior to the world. So often the church does that, though. Um, we, we hoard the grace of God and we exclude the world, feeling superior to the world. But Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy for people who are sin sick and tax collectors and for self-righteous religious people too. Mercy. Verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but only those who are sick, which is ironic um, he probably looked at the Pharisees kind of with a sidelong glance, smiling, knowing that what he was saying there was not exactly true. Because he's not saying that there are some people who are well, and there are other people who are sick, and I came only for the sick people. That's of course, that's not what he's saying. He's, what he's saying is, you're all sick. Some of you know that, and some of you don't know that, but you're you're all sick. And so, I'm inviting you to to stop using these laws of of food laws and these table fellowship laws, stop doing that and using those to cover up your guilt and come inside and let me heal you. Those who are well have no need of a physician, those who are sick, and I want you to come and say that you're sin sick, that you are sick, that you need forgiveness. Unfortunately, so much of the time we use moral comparison to cover over our sin sickness. So Instead of asking for forgiveness and dwelling with others who are sinners, we try to say, you know, I go to church, I read the Bible, I pray, I tithe, I volunteer, I do this, that, and the other. And therefore, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, tax collectors. That's actually a prayer uh, that a Pharisee prayed that Jesus called out in Luke 18.9. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other people. But how often do we think that? If you're a Christian um, like me, that's so often the way we think. I thank you that I'm not like these other people. A preacher I've been listening to ever since I heard him preach live uh, is named H.B. Charles, one of Jonah's favorite preachers. I encourage you to listen to him. He says, there are only two types of people in this room right now. Those who are sin sick and know it, and those who will leave here talking about what's wrong with everybody else here today. So the there's only two types of people in this room right now. Those who are sin sick and you know it. And then those of you who are just saying, I'm not like the rest of them. I'm better than the rest of them. And the fact is, of course, we're all in the same boat and we all need massive forgiveness. And the question of the passage is, are you going to come and enter into Matthew's house with all these sinners? Are you going to identify with sinful people? And thrilled to be invited there. It's kind of like the older brother and the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. God throws this huge party for his younger son who's come home. He's been forgiven. The older brother is standing outside and not willing to go in. And he's like, Dad, I've lived with you my whole life. You've never thrown me a single party. And, and God says, all that I have is yours. All I have is yours. Come and join the party. Your son was lost and now he's found. Come and enter in. And that's what... That's what the application is for us, too. Are we going to stay outside the house like the cold Pharisees and be judgmental? Or the lukewarm disciples? Or are you going to go into the house where Jesus sits? Because he dwells only with sinners. And if you feel distant from God right now, that could be part of it. not saying that's the whole thing, but that could be part of it, is that you have stood a little outside the congregation of sinners, and you're kind of waffling or judging maybe out there, but... I know that you can't feel close to God if you're not inside of Matthew's house. Because you've got to be there with the people who are being forgiven and rejoicing. You just can't. There's not, you're not going to feel close to God if you're not in the congregation of the sinful, the forgiven sinners. A lot of times it's hard for me to think about how I sinned. We pray at night as a family and we confess our sins to each other and I have to... I have to come up with this stuff. It's really tough. The praise is okay. That's pretty easy. The thanksgiving is pretty easy. The asking prayer for other people. But the forgiveness part, you know, I, I've got to, like, think really hard. What did I do today? And, of course, my children or my wife could immediately tell me, like, in an instant, well, let me, sometimes I'll even say, Dad, what about, you didn't mention that. But somebody sent me a text on Tuesday and it said, some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're only playing with religion. And when you stop and think about meeting the gaze of absolute goodness, are you going to be okay? Are you going to be fine there? Like, I'm good. You know, me and absolute goodness, we're good. You know, I I thought, I I read that and I thought, I, I am really, I really am guilty. I really do need forgiveness. I am not better than other people as I so often think, that Jesus didn't come down here to improve my life a little bit. He didn't, he didn't come to teach morals. You know, people think that Jesus came and he was a great moral teacher. That's not why he came. That was a little part of it. He didn't come to heal people. He didn't come to soothe people's consciences. He didn't even come primarily so that we could go to heaven. He came so that he could die for sinful people and have them forgiven. That was his great gift and he wanted to open up his home, the home of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, Antoine's, and say, come on in. All the drinks are on me. Everything's free tonight. Come on in and enjoy the banquet of total forgiveness. Everyone is welcome at this table. I love the song that says, the only fitness that...